0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off.
0: any other subtext, you'd think that he was a juvenile delinquent, but because he's from New York, he's an artist.
1: He told me you had just attacked somebody with a machete. And he told me that he's never going
0: to stop creating, no matter what.
1: His entire life, from when he wakes up in the morning from the very first moment he opens his eyes till the moment he closes his eyes he's thinking about ways he can challenge himself and his cohorts into being creative. I mean I can't imagine making a film that wasn't anti-establishment. I mean have seen it? It's not part of the establishment.
0: I just knew that he wrote, and I knew that he was dyslexic, but I hadn't really considered what the two of those things meant until after I started editing his raw work.
1: Diagnosed at a very young age,
0: and it's according to who you are. Thirty years ago, Ethan started a zine that became an art movement.
1: It's known that the art world now is just a place that's about money and moving and shaking. It's not really about discovering artists and doing that anymore. So as artists, we have to carry on in our own sort of collective way, because I think we're some of the last that's left in the element. Oh God, it's so narcissistic. Who would make the film about well themselves? Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I am talking with Ethan Minsker. He is the director of the film Camo Man. He's also the director of the upcoming documentary about film threat, Film Threat Sucks, which you heard Chris Gore talk about many years ago, and which I might be a part of, so I guess I need to do that kind of like disclaimer thing, full disclosure, all that kind of stuff. We'll see if I make the cut. Definitely check out Man and Camo when you get the chance. Check out Ethan's other films as well. He's a very entertaining guy, and I hope you
0: enjoyed the interview. Why would someone make a film about themselves? Like, that's crazy. That's not the first question. You put it together so well,
1: that question didn't even enter my mind. I am, it was such a great look at you and your history, and I love the use of the archival footage of yourself. The old videos of you was just incredibly entertaining.
0: Maybe I'm just sort of reflecting on my own fears of, you know, when you make a film and it's about yourself, in the process, you're not really thinking about it. But then once you start showing it to people, you realize, oh, people are just going to think I'm a complete garbage. Like, why would this egomaniac make a film about himself? I've been archiving everything I've done creatively since I was a kid my first fanzines, every photo, every film. And it's it's almost like you have this thing where it's like if you're in a car accident and your life flashes before your eyes, it's like I've been building those elements up since I can remember. So I'm glad you like the old crazy footage because it's like when I was a kid with the first... Betamax camcorder I think it was a Beta 100 or something like that it was like the first consumer Betamax camera where the camera the tape could actually fit inside the actual camera as opposed to having a separate unit recording and the films I was making like these skits and stuff obviously referencing like Saturday Night Live or like um Kentucky Fried Movie and things like that I thought I was making these like epic films that people were going to love. But then I was too shy to ever really show to anybody. So a lot of those tapes, it's like they were never played again. It was like I recorded it. I didn't even watch it. I didn't (laughs) show anybody. A lot of the tapes I heard a long time ago that if you the more times you play like a videotape, that it actually degrades. So I kept those in pristine condition. And if all, you know, maybe only watched them once and was too shy to ever show them, So it's weird to have them like playing in front of an audience, especially at festivals, where you're like, oh, this is me in my basement, just me and the camera filming. Very weird thing to
1: have happen. Well, for the audience that hasn't seen Man in Camo, tell me a little bit more about yourself and
0: tell me how you got interested in filmmaking. I'm dyslexic, learning disabled, and I had a lot of issues with school and doing well in school and... My sort of community and neighborhood, it's it's once they found out you went to like a special school for dyslexia, I was picked on and had a hard time and getting into something creative was my own way of kind of expressing my frustrations and angers and also comedy. But, you know, in those tapes, you don't see a lot of like, we made these whole series of short films where it was like, kill the LD and LD is learning disabled. And so my friends who are non-dyslexic, we'd have these videos where they're basically chasing me down and killing me over and over again through the parks in Washington, D.C. And I didn't include that in the film, but making those films was definitely a way out for me. And then that also led me to get into punk rock and in punk rock fanzines. And the thing I take away from punk rock is that there's no kind of rules. So if you make a zine and you're writing in it and it's spelled wrong and, you know, whatever kind of issues it is, it's forgiven. And people, you know, within that community were never like, Oh, you're an idiot because you can't read as well as somebody else. They were like, okay, cool. It's punk. We don't care. The film itself really does kind of reflect a couple of things. And that's like this punk rock attitude, you know, this do it yourself attitude. The not relying on gatekeepers, not relying on other people to give you, you know, a voice, make your own voice. I'd say if like if somebody out there is like listening to this, it's like, um, you know, it's a documentary about an individual artist and his struggle to find success and all the different ways he keeps trying to find success. And instead of it being like a regular format documentary. I really tried to experiment with the form. So making wild style animation, a lot of handcrafted elements that I would spend, you know, maybe four months to come away with 10 seconds of usable footage. And even all the way through film festivals and even before handing it over to the distributor, I kept updating that footage and making it as crazy as I could because my own theory when it comes to filmmaking is that you're providing an experience for the audience and you want to give them the most unique and engaging experience. And if you're going to watch a documentary about somebody, you should be more inserted into the person's like mind and thinking. So that documentary is very fast. There's a not a linear structure. We leap from subject to subject because that's the way my mind works. You know, like it's a very fast moving. And I work on a lot of different projects and I have extreme focus, but I just don't want the viewer to be able to have any chance of predictability. Whatever's coming up, you're not going to be able to predict. I mean, you may think it's going to be one of these films where like, oh, he went through some hardships and then he overcame them. Well, I mean, that's in there too, but the way I lay it out is very different, I think, I hope. So, I don't know when the first time you
1: came on my radar was I don't know if it was through your zine or through some of your early films like anything boys can do but I think it was through the zine because I was kind of in that scene as well you know you mentioned fact sheet five I was definitely pouring through that every single time I could find an issue tell me more about the zine and tell folks at home more about the zine
0: a fanzine is an independently published magazine it could be xeroxed it could be hand-drawn it could be a one-pager but typically it's non-commercial. So it's like you're a fan of something, a fanzine. I sort of used like the models of the punk rock magazines growing up in DC, you know, going to a record store called Smash in Georgetown, I would flip through them. And a lot of them were like photo zines and stuff like that, where they were like, just take pictures of shows. And I made my own zine, which was first East Coast Exchange, which covered the New York City hardcore in Washington DC because I'd started going to college and this is in 1988 so I would go to CBGBs or I would go to the 930 club and I would interview bands and photograph it and slowly after a while of doing this it's like you you have photographers you're working with writers and then you're getting artists and illustrators and you're sort of bringing this community together And then people would reach out to you and say like, oh, I really love your zine. And it it gave me confidence to keep pursuing that. And it really gave me kind of an insight of how you build a community through doing something creative. So, it's like I'm always looking for models where it's like I can make something that, yes, it's my project, but it also helps somebody else. So, I'm doing it for selfish reasons. But at the same time, it's helping to support an entire community. So the zine really showed me that, which then after that, it's like 94 or so, 92 to 94. I made Anything Boys Can Do, which is this documentary about women and punk rock bands and rock bands in the Lower East Side and how there was all the sexism within the music scene and like being forced to play these all-girl nights, you know, and stuff. And that also gave me a thing of like, oh, this community. And then I decided to, that sort of leapfrogged into me starting an art movement called the Antagonist Art Movement, which then encompassed music, film, fanzines, and reaching out to other communities of artists and building a larger network.
1: So you started the zine late 80s, and it's still going today, is that
0: right? Well, it was until COVID hit. So, like, my kind of theory on creativity a lot of the times is beg, borrow, cheat, or steal. So, wherever I can access something, I'm going to exploit it because I want to, you know, use that for creativity. So, I had a day job where I was in an office and I would borrow their copy machines and make many, many copies. Keep in mind, like my immediate boss is all new because I would give them issues and give it, you know, whatever. But my thing was like, I didn't want to charge for it. So I would make copies and then put it out in the galleries and send it to other cities. And as many as I could make for free, I would disperse through the galleries and record shops and all through lower Manhattan as much as I could. But now that we don't have access to an office, it's on hold. Which might be a good reason that they keep me out of the office because they're probably saving money on all that at this point. Where did the name psychomotozine come from so Psychomotozine is supposed to mean crazy machine, so like psycho crazy moto machine, and it's this theory that I sort of rolled into the antagonist movement in our manifesto is that we have a cycle of life we're a carbon based life form and it's Regardless of what you believe, I mean, even if you're reincarnated, we have a certain amount in this form and in this body. So, we are living in a cycle. We eat, sleep, you know, shit, go to work, and repeat. And the only way to break outside of that cycle is by doing something creative. So, psychomoto is the act of leaping outside of that cycle to create.
1: I seem to also remember when the soft hustle was Maybe on the film festival circuit. Can you tell me a little bit about that
0: one? The Soft Hustle was a film we started in 1999 and finished it roughly 2003 or something like that. And we continued filming even after like September 11th happened and below 14th street was closed off. Um, you know, we kept filming in the neighborhood, even though they said the neighborhood was closed and whatever. We just kept going. We filmed. Two blocks away from the World Trade Center, like a week prior to the buildings coming down. It's basically mostly true stories of overheard conversations or things that happened in the bars that we worked in. So I was a bartender for many, many years and I would jot down and eavesdrop on what the patrons were saying. And every week we would shoot like one or two, one, we would spend two hours shooting once a week and over the course of four years we completed an entire feature film and as we made each sort of segment like each it was like basically four shorts put together the businessman the florist the artist and then the end so it's like four segments and those would play in like the new york underground film festival and woodstock and a bunch of like those things but now that it's on, like, Amazon, it's been having – well, it was until Amazon just took it off of its prime focus. But it was having tons of views in the last couple of months. In the film, it has a whole bunch of, like, you know, Jesse Mallon. It has Paul Bear from Sheer Terror. It has uh Handsome Dick Manitoba from The Dictators. It has Max Huber from Swinging Utters. It has Sergio Vega from Quicksand. So, it's filled with, like, these kind of, like, punk rock Lower East Side icons. Steve Bongi, who was the president of the Hell's Angels. It has all these kind of like fixtures and people of the bar scene and the music scene. And in the film, it's like no actors. We just beg, borrow, cheat, or steal. We used what locations we had access to, which were bars and record stores and shops. A lot of them don't even exist anymore. The guns in the film, most of them are real guns. We didn't have the money to rent props because we needed to have insurance. The insurance was quoted as 2000 bucks. So we couldn't afford the insurance. We couldn't afford to rent the prop gun. And then once we started making the film, it's it's like the gang community of the Lower East Side was like, I hear you making a movie. I want you to put me in the movie. And here I got my own gun. And so like the one of the characters is a gun dealer. And like you see him with all these guns. And a lot of the times there were real guns. At this point, There was a gentleman in Brooklyn who was murdered by the cops for pulling out his wallet and they shot him, right? So, there was riots and the whole neighborhood was on edge and we were making this no-budget film with a camcorder, no crew, whatever, and with like real guns. So, we had to have almost like a drug dealer where we had somebody on the corner watching and being like, yo, 5-0! And then we put the guns away. One guy would walk away with the guns. I'd walk away with the camera. The actor would sit there and wait, and then we would go back to it. But the whole budget of that film is like 2000 bucks, and that was for the limo scene. where you had to rent a limo, which was like 50 bucks. hotel that we rented in Atlantic City for this one scene where they go to Atlantic City, and then the rest was on the drugs that are in the film, which are like real drugs that the actors were like, we got to do this for real. You got to keep in mind, I don't drink, I don't use any drugs, I don't do anything. So for me, I'm like, all right, I guess we're spending the money. I'm spending money on drugs that I'm not going to use, which is a weird thing. Yeah, it's a weird film though. I wonder sometimes like how it really stands up to today because it's a, you know, it's pretty raw and wild with the whole cancel culture thing. But, you know, it was true. This is things that really happened, except for the last scene where everybody gets murdered, but that kind of fictionalized. But everything else was stuff that was occurring and that I witnessed, so.
1: When did you decide that you were going to make Man and Camo? Because it feels like such a statement about you and your life. I mean, obviously, you have a full career in front of you, but this feels like such a like time capsule of, this is me at this particular time.
0: Right. I had some people saying, like, you know, you're – a little young to have a whole film just kind of capsulating your whole life. And I say to that, well, I could always make part two. After like, um, the soft hustle, I made a series of these kind of art documentaries that documented the antagonist art movement. i made, I don't know, like five of those or whatever, and they're all feature films. And it's, you know, it interviews lots of different artists. And so Every time I make a film, I show it to other filmmakers and they give me the feedback of like, oh, well, you should be more a subject in the, you know, more of a focus in these films. And I'm hesitant because it's a, you know, I'm covering a group of us and we all work together collaboratively. And so I can't overshadow any of the other artists. So it's like if you saw Self-Medicated, a film about art that covers all of the art projects we did in. 2013 like going around the world and Mexico and you know in Ecuador and all over this this place in just one year and all the filmmakers kept coming back being like you need to be a bigger voice and I was like no so after this happening over and over again I was like okay I'm going to separate one film out where it's just my voice going crazy and letting my ego run wild now When I show this film to like, you know, in other countries and stuff like that, they're like, wow, this is like something artists wouldn't do, like be so brash and so much like focused on like pushing your own work. But in New York and in the Lower East Side, you know, there's a real focus that you have to push your own work. If you're not the one advocating for it, nobody cares because you're competing with everything out there. So it's almost like New York City and downtown really is like a boot camp for pushing you to advocate for yourself, So this whole film kind of really falls in line with this New York, you know, theory on be aggressive when it comes to your own art. You know, and all of the other projects, I really didn't really focus on what I was doing so much, but just giving little hints of it. So this I kind of wanted to show that here are all the many, many aspects of like doing a zine and a nonprofit and an art movement and making weird films and performance art and visual art. And giving you like a mad sort of summary of everything that I do in one sort of package. Now, it's like, this is all said and good. But then it's like, you know, as a filmmaker, you know, you know, oh, you're going to make a film without the gatekeepers and you're just going to do it. And at some point, you're then going to festivals, right? And submitting. So, for me, the big problem was, is like, the other films I submit and if they didn't get in, it's like, okay, well, you know, we didn't like your film we like you as a person. We just didn't like that film. So, this one, Man in Camo, I always felt like, oh, we don't like this film and we don't like you. So, we don't like either. So, it's a big X on that. The part of making a film about yourself is you have to learn to let go of the concept of what other people think of you because you're going to come off as an egomaniac. That's fine. And secondly, like if festivals don't like it, don't take it so personal. It's like, you know, it is what it is. It's a film about you and you're not famous. And even though that's kind of the point of it, that's how it's going to have to be. So I started it in right after self-medicated and well, technically I started it since I was born because it has footage and everything going up till right before I submitted it to the distributor. But I, I spent about four years on a film is typical. I did this thing like I had this theory also when it comes to creativity it's like it could be a little bit better even the slightest bit little bit better could potentially mean something so you know when you're thinking about something like you know Rotten Tomatoes or something like that or like and by the way it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes selling point there is that you're trying to get to like when a festival takes it they kind of like rank your film right so I'm always trying to get my film at an 8 so anything to get it at an eight, which means like, I can't, I don't have the budget to make it a 10, but I can strive for an eight if I just take patience and just keep reworking it and reworking it. And like you, I showed something, a rough cut and I got feedback on it and I recut it based on that feedback. And I do this with people that I respect their opinion and filmmakers and all sorts of different backgrounds to try to make a rounded film. I was going to say that the guys who worked on the film with me at one point, came into the editing room and they were like, you know, we need to talk to you about something. And I'm like, what? Like, this is like an intervention there. And they're like, stop working on this film. Start working on the next film because like you're obsessing over it. And, and then I turned to him and I said, but it could be just a little bit better. <laughs> and I kept doing it. So, and it is better. It, it You know, it, ultimately it's like most people, when a film is done, they watch it one time and then you're forever judged. And that's going to be, affecting the next time you make a film and the festivals you want to get into and all of that. So, I mean, I'm a self-funded filmmaker. Like, everything I do, I work a day job, I save up, I spend it on the thing, I beg, borrow, cheat, or steal to make that film happen, but I don't have outside funding of any kind. So, the, the advantage I have is I can make it any way I want to, but the limitations I have is... I don't have the big special effects, but I have all the time in the world, so I'll just keep making it better and learning and developing my talent. How many projects do you work on at a time? <laughs> Currently, right now, I have two documentaries that I'm editing. One, The Film Threat One, Film Threat Sucks, Come Out Who Knows When, and Scooter LaForge, The Art and Fashion, who's working on that today, a script a feature script that I wrote that I just started submitting about a priest and a 12 year old girl committing small crimes in a, in a town they live in. And then an art project, a visual, like, you know, like a paper mache cardboard city that I made, like that filled up my mother's house, like with these buildings that I've just submitted to a bunch of art shows. Um And then I'm doing like a, podcast for the Project Nerd guys where that's like about cosplay and stuff and it's kind of a world I'm not really into which is kind of the like I'm like the guy who's like I don't know anything about it tell me about dressing up like somebody else so it's like a learning show for me but it's still like creativity so I'm very much focused on all the different arts and stuff like that so those are the main ones but then there's also a a third book I wrote about the antagonist art movement that an editor is looking at uh, out in California, but I can't – that'll never come out because I can never find a publisher. Like, again, it's always the gatekeeper is myself. So, if I decide to self-publish that one like I did the other two books, you know, it's like I say to a publisher, like, I sold almost, you know, 750 copies of each of these books. You know, that's like a fair amount for like a small publisher, but still they're like, you're not famous. I'm like, I have a movie about me. You're not famous. You don't have a million followers on Instagram.
1: You dropped the bomb there about the Film Threat documentary. How did you get involved with
0: Film Threat Sucks? And I'm definitely going to make ask Chris Gore to listen to this podcast. He watched Man in Camo, very much and loved it, enjoyed it, or at least he told me he did. They gave it a terrific review. I did their podcast. It was reviewed. They did a whole bunch of things to cover it, really pushed it. Totally loved it. And then he was like writing to me and he's like – or off the podcast thing, he was like, oh, you know, and like our life stories are so similar and like your style is like perfect and I've been trying to do one on Film Threat and, you know, I have these drives with all this footage on it and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, you know, I'm always happy to like look at the footage and like throw together a slop cut. And a a slop cut to me is just like kind of like vignettes of things and not – it's kind of how I always start an edit is I just like – scenes that I put together and it makes kind of a logical sense, but it's way too long. So like a slop cut will be like three hours. And so he sent me a drive and I was like, Oh my God, this is a lot more footage than I expected. And then as I'm going through the footage, I'm like, this looks like it was started more than once. And he's like, yeah, it was started like two other times. And I'm like, so there's like two other filmmakers out there that started it and stopped, started it and stopped. And then, you know, when It was during COVID, so I was like, well, I was unemployed for like three months until work started up again. And I just started like putting it together and and my obsessive compulsive behavior sort of like took over and now it's like too late. I've kind of like gone down the rabbit hole. I mean, it's it's an interesting subject. And, you know, Chris, I, I love the guy and he's like, you know, kind of one of these things of like a hero and a villain at the same time. I mean, they sent me. And my um, my uh, line producer, Marissa, to the archive and we went through it and I'm like, oh my God, he's keeping all these letters he probably shouldn't have because I'm like, and then I'd ask him, be like, hey, this guy hates you for this reason. And he'd be like, yeah, 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 you know, and then tell me the reason why. And I'm like, God, I don't know why you kept this. Like, just makes me so suspicious. But in the film, I think we have a lot of that stuff of like, you know, people's opposing opinions. And he seems to really like that which will make a better film if he's brave enough to let me as a filmmaker kind of go crazy on it and then let the contradicting and clashing voices have their say. It makes for a more interesting film because it wasn't like an easy process. And at the same time, it's also like in my mind, it's like film threat and the writers and editors and the organization really did help out a lot of independent films You know, like I had my film reviewed in that. And in fact, I tried to tell this to Chris. I don't think he ever gets this, but at one point, anything boys can do was licensed by film threat to be distributed by them. Right. And then it's like, I had this thing. Well, first you got to understand, like anything boys can do, you know, it played in 50 festivals around the world. It was in the New York Times. It was covered like in everything. And then Troma took it and it's like, all right. And I was warned. I was like, OK, I know they have no money, but then they never put it out. So like two years later, I wrote him a letter like they're like, fine, we'll release you. And then they released me and then film threat picked it up. And then like two years later, nothing happened with it. And then film threat went under. And so it's like and Chris was very nice about that. I, he, I got a letter from him saying, we're sorry, you know, our money folded up. And I think that was right when Larry Flint had dropped the magazine and all of that. So it makes sense now that I'm working on it. Film Thread as an organization helped out all these independent filmmakers and it and it always seems in this kind of thing, and I'm in the same position with the antagonist movement is you do a lot of work to help a lot of like creatives and you push their career forward and then they sort of like don't help you out. Like they're like, cool, thank you, bye. So in some ways, I feel like this is a way that I can make up for the burden that all of these people suffered for not getting paid and making no money by making a film that highlights the magazine itself. I don't know if that's accurate. Maybe that's what I'm telling myself, because I'm not getting paid, obviously. So, I mean, I'd better at the end, but, you know, that's another argument. That'll be film threat, too.
1: You see that two other filmmakers have tried this. I would think that there'd just be a huge red flag, and you're just like, oh, no, I shouldn't touch this, because obviously the ship has sailed twice and sunk.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, you know, like making a film about yourself, Man in Camo is a big red flag to most people, right? Why should we watch a film? That's it, you know. So I'm a red flags kind of guy. But yeah, it's like one film. This is stuff that I guess Chris could illustrate better. But to me, it seems like, you know, the filmmakers he was reaching out to wanted to make these kind of like multi-million dollar projects, which just wasn't going to happen. It's not a documentary that people are going to put in a ton of money for. I just don't see that happening. So it's like they made good faith efforts and they provided stuff that was good, you know, but to find somebody who's going to edit it and then do the directing of it and then shoot tons more footage of it and then really make it come around. That's like, you know, it's like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. So it's, it would have been an amount of work that you're really not going to make economic gains from it. I mean, even if a documentary is on some major thing, you know, like, um, streaming service, they don't make a ton of money. They just don't. So putting the ton of money into it would be like a really bad investment. The people that were trying to do it were trying to make this like big kind of Hollywood, very normal type of film. And that also just doesn't play with what Film Thread is. I mean, Film Thread is like a wild style punk rock magazine. It's a get down dirty, feel no rules, you know. So, that's what Man in Camo is. Like, you need something, I'm going to handcraft it. I'm going to build, you need a shot of like a landscape of a city, I'm going to make that out of cardboard, I'm going to film it, I'm going to animate on top of it. And it'll look crazy, it'll look cool, it'll look like nothing you've ever seen before. But it's not going to be just like these beautiful drone shots and really great footage and big budget cameramen and all that stuff. Like, you're not going to get that from a film I'm making. And Film Threat shouldn't be that film anyway. So, what Chris said is that I'm the perfect filmmaker to make this film. And, I, you know, I I tend to agree. And if that's a mistake on his end, it's too late now because I've gone too far down that rabbit hole. Who knows? Maybe this gets turned over to the fourth filmmaker and they're like, what the – take all these puppets out of here and animation. I'm getting rid of all this oh, stuff. God, I would be, I would, you know, that would be pretty upsetting. I mean, like in man in camo, it's like to give an example, it's like, there's a scene where you see a book, a physical book flipping pages. And within the pages, you can see me talking or my wife talking and that's animated and all of that. That took three months for each of those books. And that's like literally 10 seconds in the, in the film. And that's the same kind of effort I'm putting into film threat sucks. Again, I didn't come up with the title that was given to me. The film is being s- built and styled off of like the elements I have. And then I'm adding way more, you know, doing more interviews and all of that stuff.
1: How are you doing this while the pandemic is? pretty much raging. I mean, now it's it's starting to taper off, but you said you got the drive like while you were off work from the pandemic. So obviously you're shooting a ton of stuff while we're still masked up, unvaccinated, all that.
0: Yeah, and I did the same thing for the Scooter LaForge documentary too, because that I've been shooting for three years, my normal thing. And then right up to the pandemic and then we were filming in the pandemic. So, you know, like for Chris's thing I had to do six more hours of interviews. So we did that through StreamYard. So I basically did that with a stream recording. And then Andre, who's in the film, I did that through streaming. But then we have Chris and some another Chris in Detroit, who's a filmmaker there, who can pick up a few interviews in person now that COVID is kind of on the downside. And once everyone is vaccinated, I have other filmmakers who will create shoot stuff for me. But then the majority of it, I'm just shooting in my apartment, just like Man in Camo. It's like, you know, I have the coffee room, I have the coffee table and my daughter's little white table and I build sets and I film it and then I bring it right into the system and then I animate to it. So a lot of the stuff I'm filming in this apartment or, you know, going in the neighborhood, like there's a, a scene in the film threat one where I smash a VHS. I did that in the park a couple blocks from my house just with my iPhone and put up a black sheet and then smashed it with a meat tenderizer and then put that in the film and people must think I'm crazy cuz I was they'd always see me in the park filming on the little like picnic benches and stuff like that like a maniac so but I've been doing I did that with man in camo and even before the pandemic so you know there's this kind of theory that you have from a lot of creatives where it's like I wish I had more time. The one thing I don't have is time. And then the pandemic hit, and then talking to my, you know, connection and community, a lot of people were just so messed up by it that they just, you know, weren't able to create. Me, on the other hand, you know, I as I say in Man and Camo, it's like I deal with a lot of like my own darkness and depression and stuff like that by creating. So if I'm unemployed and I'm depressed, I'm going to crank out more stuff. So I just did a ton, a ton, a ton of animation and stuff like that because, you know, I it wasn't going to waste my time. And I'm really glad that I did because I have two feature films that are almost done, a feature script that's done, um, you know, an entire city built out of recycled material that's waiting for an art, a gallery to pick it up. How
1: far do you think you need to go to get Film Threat Sucks to an 8?
0: I mean, like, your comments, like, so for the audience that knows, I shared a link with Mike because he clearly knows what he's talking about. It happens.
1: Every once in a while it happens that I know what you're, I'm talking no, about. You you're just good.
0: Like, you had really, like, your knowledge of Film Threat really blows me away because, like, I'm learning as I go. I only read, like, a couple of the issues because I was like, am I in it? I'm not in it, fuck it, you know, so your knowledge has been really helpful. And, you know, it's like, I'll just keep making it better as I can go. I mean, there's other elements and other interviews that we're trying to add to it. So that'll happen. And I'm still going to try to keep it at 90 minutes because my theory on documentaries, it's as abusive if you go over 90 minutes, you know. Like most subjects, you should be able to tell in 90 minutes. If I can tell my whole life story in 82 minutes, you, you know, you can do yours in less than 90. So I'll just keep adding into it. And then I think in the fall, we're, we'll start submitting to festivals, but there's still a lot of work to do. And honestly, even if it gets into a festival, it'll never screen the same way, just like none of my films ever do. Like you watch it. I go and watch you watch the film and that hyper sort of like sensitivity that I feel will make me take notes in the viewing in the room. And then I'll go back and change it based on that. So the film will never screen the same until a distributor takes it. And this is also like a thing that we say in the antagonist art movement. It's like, you know, when you're creating, you have to enjoy the process. So as long as I'm creating and changing it, I'll enjoy the process and I'll enjoy the screenings. But the moment that it's taken away from me or a distributor has it, then it's like dead to me. there's nothing I can do to it, so you have to let it go, and I can't change it, so I might as well just murder it in my mind, even though I'm still promoting it you You have to promote these things forever, like I'm promoting all my last projects and books you know on my my deathbed they'll be like, "Do you have any last words? Have you seen man in camo bah. Have you ever I had to work on a project you didn't like? My day job is working for reality TV in the promos department. So yeah, every day. Like every day I hate reality TV. And, you know, people I know who like they'll know they're like, oh I really love that show. And I'm like, I I have no clue who any of these people are you're talking about. I'm like, but you edited the promo. And I'm like, I don't watch the show. Like they give me a script and then you know, even the producers will be like, Oh, name somebody in the show. And then I'll be like, Have to Google it. Cause I'm like, I don't know. Like, I know, you know, I won't watch any of the episodes. Like, if you want me to watch the episodes, then you have to pay me to watch the episodes. Cause I, I just reality TV, you know, that's funny from somebody who makes documentaries is like how much I hate reality TV, but reality TV is not reality. Like, a documentary is something completely different than what reality TV has become. So, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly working on stuff I hate. And then, you know, also I have a lot of people who devote their time to my projects and I try to help out when I can on theirs. But generally, I don't hate their projects. I'm i really usually into it. Like the more I'm into it, the more work I'll put into it. I mean, it's life. You have to have a paying job, right? Like, oh, you're that documentary filmmaker and it pays your mortgage and your all your daughter's stuff. And like, like no, I make like, I throw my money into these documentaries and it burns up into the creative flame. And, you know, it spit back to me in a little bit of like, oh, I really liked your film. And I'm like, great. Thanks for watching it. Oh, I, I downloaded it for free from a streaming service. Oh, even better. You know, somebody had said like, I got it. One of the audio guys I work with sent me... A text was like, Hey, is this your film? And I look at him like, Yeah, that's Man in Camo. I'm like, Cool. It's on a torrent site. And I'm like, What? Like, what's that? Like, you know, the babe in the woods who's about to get slaughtered. Ooh, what is that? That shiny thing. That's a shotgun. Let me put my nozzle. Let me put my nose right up to it. And he goes, Yeah, that's like a free site where people download stuff. And I was like, Oh, like, so they're not paying for it. And then they're, he's like, No. And he goes, But it's on the main page, so it's really popular. I'm like, Oh, so a lot of people are downloading it. And I'm like, All right. Well, nothing you can do. Like a distributor has it. That's their job to figure that out. So, you know, again, it's, that's when it helps. Like it's dead to me in some ways. I also did notice there was like more sales of the book for a little. I was like, why are people buying the book? It could only be man and camo and or self medic. I mean, sorry, self medicated because those have little parts about the book. So I feel like it wasn't because people were renting the film. It's because people were downloading it. And they're like, oh, I'll check out the book. So I guess I'm lucky they didn't find some free site with the book is. I've seen
1: pretty much everything I've ever written uh, available on torrent sites. And sometimes it's like a point of pride. And other times it's like, you fuckers.
0: I mean, I tried to, I t- I, like in my mind, I was like, I could go totally crazy like I normally do. Or I could just be like, oh, that's cool. And and I was like, you know, his he was very... The, the audio guy, uh, my friend Austin, I'll, I'll plug, you know, say his name out loud, but he was very nice. He was like, Oh, it's kind of cool. Like people are really into it, I guess. And I was like, see, it could be just a little bit better. And that helps. You like how I do that thing? I bring things up three times. That's the comedy. Comedy.
1: Tell me more about the, is it Scooter McCray? Scooter LaForge. LaForge. Okay. Scooter, Scooter McCray is a basketball player. And I was like, why is he making a documentary about a basketball player?
0: you know, in the art world in New York City, there's kind of like the darling of the art world and it's each neighborhood is divided. So it's like Uptown is the old masters. Those are people who are long dead. Those works are selling in the $100,000 million thing, you know, like that's like 60s and above. And then you have Chelsea where it's like maybe alive, maybe dead, but contemporary art primarily could be selling from 4,000 to millions again. And then you have Downtown, which is kind of like, The marshlands where artists kind of like, you know, they they populate and they grow. And then if they're lucky, they go to Chelsea. Never uptown, but at least Chelsea or something. So, Scooter is like the darling of like the downtown art scene. And I knew him from meeting him from the galleries that I show in. And a lot of the artists that I work with were like, oh, you got to meet Scooter. You got to meet Scooter. It's like the same thing where it's after a certain amount of times, I'm like, all right, I'll meet him. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to hate this guy just because everybody's telling me to like him. And then when I meet him, I'm like, oh my God, he's so nice. And he's like, kind of like a a sibling or something. So I started the documentary on him and he's done, you know, he does a lot of clothing and sells at Patricia Fields and Deborah Harry wears his stuff. And he's very popular, like, um, Beyonce wears his stuff and Justin Timberlake. And like, so he has all these celebrities that are into his clothing and buying his artwork and stuff like that. And, you know, his artwork is very like cartoonish. It has a lot of like this kind of old style, like Tex Avery kind of feel to it. And it's very punk rock. So I was very into it artistically and stylistically. And then the more I got to know him, I kind of felt out his personality But he's also been burned by, he's been on like tons of like, if you search his name, it just comes up a ton of like films and stuff. Shorts and stuff. So he's been burned by a bunch of filmmakers so I spent like about a year just hanging out and shooting and getting him comfortable with me and now we're like tight and stuff. And I think it's going to be a good film. I was actually hoping to send you a link of that to get your feedback next but I didn't want to be too pushy. I would be more than happy to watch that. I would love to see it. Another thing that I think with Man and Camo is that if I make that kind of film with somebody and like try to explain it, like I'm going to make this film where it's full of animation and full of like weird transitions and just really kind of filmed in a weird way, that's a hard sell when you haven't even done it. So Scooter had seen a bunch of my films before, you know, in the neighborhood at Anthology Film Archives and things like that. Man in Camo is kind of like the perfect example of like way I'm trying to like bring everything together. And so the film Threat Sucks one is kind of like that and Scooter LaForge, those three films I'm trying to make in my very stylistic, fast paced way. The Scooter one is much slower though, because he's a very calm and very calm kind of influence on me. So I wanted to kind of reflect his mind where the film threat sucks is again is referencing chris gore's mind which is very fast so it's like i'm styling the editing off of the person i'm shooting the way their brain is mapped as much as i can and i mean i in my mind i kind of like came up with this thing i call it cinema frantic right which is like this thing of between the viewer and the filmmaker where you're trying to like cycle these concepts very fast pound them with like almost throwing the kitchen sink at them and like seeing how much that sticks. And and that's based off of like Kenneth Anger films and like, you know, some of that sort of very fast paced, you know, like um, I think it was, is it Tropica Cancer? His film? Is that the name of it? It's like very fast, like the, the gay um, biker guys, things like that. So that film, the great rock and roll roll swindle, that Sex Pistols kind of like film documentary thing, those two films are the biggest influence on me and my filmmaking process. So it's like, I'm always trying to generate something that will give me the feeling I had when I watched those two films, which is like this awe, this shock and awe kind of like super inspired, like this caffeinated drink. So it's like, I would hope if I can make a film, I don't want someone just to watch, a film, I want to try to remap their brain, right? So if you're somebody who goes in thinking like, what's the point of trying all these different things out, right? And you watch Man in Camo or you watch Self-Medicated or these two other films that when you come out, you're going like, the message is is that why not try these things and strive for failure? Because in that failure, you're going to learn something And then the next time you do it, you're going to get a little bit better. So, even if you watched all of my films, you would see there's a progression where it's, like, just trying to get a little bit better. And maybe they're not the best films, but I'm getting better at it and I'm trying. It's like, what I always tell, like, people, like, when I'm talking to, like, younger artists, it's like, make a pile of shit. Like, if you could just shit in your own hand, like, do that. And then make it just, you know, put a little sprinkles or make it a little bit better. But as you're doing that soon, that shit's going to turn into like gold, right? Like, but don't try to make gold first. I mean, the big mistake is people are like, I'm going to make something perfect. And it's like, it's more important you make something and finish it. Those are the two important things. Make something, finish it. Don't try to make something perfect. That's not going to happen because believe me, in most people, like your mind of what's perfect is Not attainable. You don't – if you don't have the budget and you don't have the backing, you don't have the history of doing it, that's a hard sell to be like my first thing is going to be perfect. So, if you say make a piece of shit, that's easy. Anyone can make a piece of shit. Start with making the piece of shit and go from there. You know, so it's like when I listened to the projection booth, I remember there's an episode where this filmmaker was like – had such an ego. He was such an egomaniac. And then it's like you get into it. It's like you hear – Like, you guys being like, oh, God, his film was terrible or whatever. And I'm like, oh. And then he kind of, I think he wrote a letter saying, like, hey, you know, I should have really done my research and listened to the show beforehand. And then, like, I think he apologized or something. I always feel like I want to make sure that, well, I was thinking before doing this thing. And I want to make sure people know that, like, I mean, yeah, I made a film about myself. I am a complete egomaniac. I'm going to push it like it's the best thing on earth. But in my mind, it's also still a piece of shit. And I'm I'm just thrilled that anybody would have taken the time to watch it and that you watched it. And, you know, so I just want to make sure that's clear. I watched it. My wife watched it. And you're
1: kind of self-deprecating in the movie. And she was just like, this guy is one of the most creative guys I've ever seen.
0: Thank you. I'm very worried. See, but I'm like, very worried about the
1: I mean, we're seeing your paintings, we're seeing your films, we're seeing your your writing, all this stuff. Just the presentation of the film itself, it's like, fucking A, yeah, this guy's amazing. So, you, you've you got my wife's photo cons- confidence as well.
0: If I ever meet you guys in person, I'm going to definitely give you a hug and it'll be uncomfortable and weird and I make eye contact the whole time. Oh, nice. It's just incredibly, credibly hard to make anything at all. I always want to advocate not just on my own projects, but for the community around that's trying because it's like, you know, it's a tough thing to do, to do anything, whether there's COVID or not. And again, you have all the gatekeepers in the world who are really more interested in your social media, your Instagram followers, your, you know, they don't really care about the quality and the content of what you do. It's 2021.
1: So, I have to ask this question, even though I don't want to. Are your films available as physical media or just as streaming?
0: Well, The Soft Hustle used to be sold on VHS. Like, that was primarily the way I sold it and anything boys can do. A bunch of the films, actually. And then DVD. But I know Man in Camo is on DVD. You could probably find some of those other ones. But on physical media, I would say no just the books are physical the fanzines which i don't really sell like if somebody buys a book for me personally i throw some zines in there as like a little extra thing but yeah i mean it's weird because it's like i made like i i, I write on my thing it's like um an analog man trapped in a digital world that's kind of like how i describe myself and, and you watch all these films whether it's Man in Camo, or even the one that isn't out yet, the film threat sucks. It's like, you'll see that it's all about physical stuff. There's typewriters, there's VHS, there's like physical things throughout it. There's fanzines, there's books. Like It's very physical and the animation is handcrafted. But at the same time, it's like, once I make a film, it's like I have DVDs of anything boys can do and um dolls of lisbon and i know you i'm pretty sure you can still find those out there and i sell those like if somebody buys a book i you know i say like well you get to pick a free dvd if you're buying it from me um but the majority of it is just like you order a thousand of these dvds and i still have like you know like at least 200 of each of those titles and it's got to take up space and in new york it's like if i'm have like thousands of copies of books or something sitting around my apartment. That's like an extra roommate. Like that's taking up space. That's like valuable space. So, the majority of films I try to keep digital just because I'm still selling titles that are physical. But I love physical. I'm all about physical.
1: Where is the best place for people to buy the physical DVDs as well as the books?
0: Amazon is the best place to find pretty much all of that stuff. If you search Ethan Minsker, it all comes up. If you want the book deal, find me on Facebook or Instagram, Vinmo me some money and I'll send you like a book, a DVD and some zines. Like old school punk rock. Like I remember you used to write a a band and be like, oh, can I buy your seven inch? And they'd be like, sure. And they'd send you a seven inch and a whole bunch of stickers and flyers and a whole bunch of other stuff. So like I grew up in that world. So My deal is like a book, your choice of a DVD, and then I'm going to throw some zines in there. And if you get the second book in the other DVD, then I'm throwing in different zines. So it's like, you know, kids books, zines, one pagers, like, I like the physical world. And, you know, with the zine, that's definitely my way of like, reaching out to the physical world. It's like a fanzine has this nature of most people who do something creative, it's like your friends, their friends, and maybe another circle. With a zine, it's like I can break through that fourth circle and leave it somewhere random and somebody can pick it up and then be interjected into what I'm doing and all the crazy stuff I'm doing. In, in my life, it's like creatively, it's like writing films, physical art. And I try to tell people, it's like they just, you normally would just say that's a multimedia artist, right? Like I do it all and it's one project. Right. It's how I'm reflecting what I see in each project I feel is linked. So it's like if you watched the scooter film or the film threat one, you'll see me in a camo suit. And there's my name. And oh, he's in another film, Man in Camo. Oh, that film talks about the uh, soft hustle, the self-medicated. Oh, it talks about a zine. Let's look at a zine. Oh, wait, he does a book. So it's like I'm trying to build like a wall that's brick by brick, a different art project. That are all kind of like this one wall of like the same sort of thing. If you like Man and Camo, then you're probably going to like the weird books that I make or the zines that I do or the other films or the bizarre art projects that I do. So, you know, it's like I'm trying to make one thing and that's like, I guess, a headstone for when I'm dead and gone and somebody can go like, we throw all his stuff in the garbage. Oh, wait, maybe we remember him a little bit. Probably not. That's like me learning at the same time, like, all my stuff is definitely going in the garbage when I'm dead. My wife hates all my art stuff. She's like, oh, he's dead. Good. In the garbage. All of it. In the garbage. That was my life's
1: work. The one reality show you can get behind is Hoarders.
0: No, I'm not that bad. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm bad, but not that bad. I'm that bad. I don't know. It's organized. I can see behind you, like, there's, like, books and and DVDs and magazines. And I don't know if that's a spaceship or something in the far corner. I think when people come into my place, it's like they see just all kinds of like weird typewriters and masks and guns on the wall and, you know, just full of... I mean, you saw it in Man in Camo. It's like why my wife hates my guts. It's like during the pandemic, imagine like it's me, my wife and my kids stuck in this tiny apartment, right? And then I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a city. And so it was like I, I filled the house with these like cardboard boxes and actually... For anyone who wants to see it, there's a short film on Amazon Prime called Making Art During a Pandemic, which kind of shows all this. But it's like, here comes, she kept buying stuff, and then I would take those boxes and then turn them into buildings. So, it's like, stop buying stuff and I'll stop making art. She's like, but I want to buy stuff. I'm depressed. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to make art. And then it's like, then there was no room. We had to walk around all the stuff. And then my mom had a spare room. And I'm like, mom, do you mind if I bring over some of my buildings? She was like, sure. And then it's like, I filled that room, you know, and I think like I use a little hand truck. So people in the city, it's like nobody was out and they see me walking around with a mask on wheeling like a building. It must have been a very surreal. I mean, I I filmed it. I film everything. So I documented all of that. But it's like, yeah, you're in a small place. And then this guy's going to build an entire city. And it's not just a city. It's like inside you can look in a in one of the floors and you'll see like me in my camo suit inside of a room. I really did. I really did just go down a rabbit hole with that one. Where's the best place to keep up
1: with you and keep up with the docs, keep up with the films,
0: Instagram, uh, Ethan Minsker on Instagram. You can also see a lot of the clips from man in camo, the movie on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. But I don't have a whole lot of space for adding friends on there because it's like kind of almost maxed out. But I have fan pages for all the films on Facebook. I have Instagram things. But if you want a question or something, you can write me on Instagram. But I don't know. I'm always around. If anybody ever t- – I'm like that thing if you pick up a stone, right, and there's like all those insects and worms and like stuff. I'm there in that shadow like right amongst the worms just like – I'm here. I've been here the whole time. You never lifted this stone and bothered to see. I think that's how every creative feels. Self-deprecating enough. I definitely don't want to be like that other filmmaker that was such an ego. And I can't, I can't remember the name of his film, but I kind of remember the film. I'm like, no, that was not a good film, dude. Like, you're high. Why are you talking like that? Like, to me, it was like, I'm going to do some cocaine and do this interview and be really, don't do cocaine. Don't do cocaine before an interview you're high on your own supply, almost like, I don't know, it's the thing I always, it, it, like, it is a thing I'm always trying to battle. It's like, if, if I forget who it was, it's was like, I think it was maybe Mark who did uh, a band called Death Documentary. It's like, I showed him like a, a screening, like a, a trailer of a rough cut of Man and Camo. And he said to me, he's like, look, man, if you're going to make this film, that's fine. But you can't be the hero. You got to like, dirty yourself up. You got to talk about all your like, Whatever bad issues you have, you have to be honest about it. And I was like, oh, that's a good challenge. And that's good. And I like that. So it's like, I'm going to talk about violence. I'm going to talk about being, you know, picked on for dyslexia. I'm going to talk about all the struggles with depression and, you know, suicide attempts and all of those things to really kind of like show you like there's, there's no concept I ever think it's like this person's life is so great. Like you watch Anthony Bourdain, like, you know, he killed himself. Clearly things were not going great. On that. There's a guy here in New York, uh, Carlos McCormack. He's a famous art critic, I think maybe for ID or interview or one of those magazines. And he's kind of credited for discovering people like Basquiat and those he's like big time. And there's this thing for art documentaries where it's like, there's this like, I, I don't like this, but this is true. It's like the same talking heads of like kind of established white older men, right? And I'm not a big fan of that. I not I never have been. But I was like, okay, well, I know Carlos from the galleries and stuff. Like, I'll ask him, like, hey, Carlos, you know, if I send you a link in my rough cut, you know, maybe I can interview you and have you in the film because it'll give it some legitimacy. And then I saw him in around the galleries. I was like, okay, I give him enough time. It's a little weird. Why do I feel like he's avoiding me? So I went up to him like, Carlos, like, did you watch the film? Like, you know, can, can I interview you? And he's like, I watched the film. He's like, yeah, but I don't want to be in your documentary. And I was like, that's fair. But you know, can you tell me why? And he goes, cause he's, he said, I think it's too masochistic. And I'm like, what? And, he, and I was like, yeah, I don't think you should put this film out. I, I think you should just not put it out. Like, it's not going to be good for you as an artist. And then I was kind of like, I looked at him and I'm like, look at your, f- like, and this is in my mind. I would never say this to him because he's a nice guy, but my feelings were hurt. So in my mind, I'm like, you have, a you're, you're older than me and you have a ponytail. Okay. You're wearing, um, not, what are those shoes the uh, that have the holes in them? They're plastic. The, um, Crocs. I was like Crocs and Crocs are fine. But if you're like, this guy is like the art main guy and you're doing all these things that kind of look like you have lack of any style or thing. I was like, fuck this guy. So in my mind, I was like, he just didn't like the film and he doesn't want to be in it. And he's saying this kind of like his like soften the blow kind of thing. But that's fair. Not everybody is going to like what you do. In fact, a lot of people are not going to like what you're going to do. This is one of the things like when self-medicated was reviewed by film threat. The writer wrote something on the equivalent of like, like they really love the film Great review. But then there was this one part that stuck out that said, like, Ethan seems like the kind of person that if you said something negative or talk crap about him on the internet, he would challenge you to a fight on a corner. And I was like, that is true. Cause I've actually done that to people, <laughs> you know, like I'm a very sensitive guy. There was a guy who wrote a terrible review of, um, self medicated on Amazon. And it's basically like, these. this is not Jackson Pollock and this is not, I'm like, oh my God, dude, like this is a movie about street artists and galleries and, you know, mural art and all kinds of stuff. But there's clearly nothing about the old masters. There's no Jackson Pollock. There's no nothing. And he wrote like, you know, maybe if these guys had bothered to get an education in art. And I'm like, we all have our masters. We're all like highly educated in art your concept of like, what is like, you know, abstract art we're clearly not into. And the trailer never shows that. So I was like, okay, cool. So I Googled his name and found out he's some surgeon like upstate and he had no Google reviews. So I'm like, some surgeons would bother to get an education and he's no blah, blah, blah. So I basically took his review and pasted it into his only Google review, referencing his thing, thinking like, oh, maybe he would, you know, check that out. But If you decide to make something creative, you have to kind of let go of your ego at the same time stroking your ego and have enough ego to put it out there and realize that whatever you're going to do, like there's going to be tons of people that just don't like it. But you're not making anything for them. You're making it first for yourself and then secondly for those like-minded individuals. So it's like all of these films are like a calling card that I put out in the world, like, if you like what I do, find me, you're going to like other stuff. What I do, I might like what you do. I might not, but I might. So it's like, that's kind of like the driving force of doing it. Because I'm not going to make any money. And a lot of people, you know, aren't going to care. But some people will. And that's like who you're really doing that for. That's what, you know, your audience, my audience, that's, that's the reason we do anything.
1: Ethan Minsker, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful.
0: Thank you. And get ready for the next link. Here comes another film I need some feedback on. This episode of The Projection Booth, and as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience, here at The Projection Booth, podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang.